Maine is known for its rocky coastline, beautiful forests, and brutal winters. It's the home of Stephen King, Alan's Coffee Brandy, and the Best Lobster. To the people who come from away, it's a vacation. But to those of us who live here, it's the way life should be. Welcome to Vacationland. My name is AJ, and I will be your guide through the history and mysteries of Maine. Seventy-six years ago, Nazi POW camps sprung up around the state of Maine. Congresswoman Margaret Chase Smith and Senator Owen Brewster had lobbied for the camps to replace the dwindling workforce, which had continued to enlist or move to other parts to assist in the war efforts. Maine, which is an agricultural state, had found itself without young men to work its fields. Paper mills, which was another major industry, were also suffering from the labor shortage and both industries were vital to the war effort. In the Down East article, Escape from Spencer Lake by Ron Joseph, he writes, In 1944, the War Production Board had challenged Maine to increase its lumber production by 45%, an impossible mandate without an adequate labor force. So Smith and Brewster pleaded with the War Department to send German POWs to Maine to cut pulpwood and pick potatoes, downplaying the potential dangers of establishing fortified camps for enemy combatants in the Maine North Woods. The government would acquiesce, and thousands of prisoners would be split between camps in Indian Township, Holton, Augusta, Bangor, Presque Isle, Sabumuk, and Spencer Lake. Those who went to Spencer Lake had previously served as members of the elite Africa Corps and were captured in May of 1943 when the Allies defeated the Germans in Tunisia and Morocco. And now they were in the 22-building facility, surrounded by barbed wire and guard towers. The camp would balloon to 310 prisoners, despite being designed to hold only 250. On March 7, 1945, 18-year-old Franz Keller, 19-year-old Horst Schluter, and 20-year-old Anton Gieb hid rations and pouches of sugar under their clothing, and slipped into the snowy main woods. They had fashioned snowshoes from shortboards and rail ties. They were armed with knives they had made themselves and stolen axes from their work detail. They also took with them a map from a woodcutter. They had made their own compass from a sewing needle, a magnetized electrical coil, and the tin top from a can. Their plan was to make it to the coast some 100 miles away and hitch a ride on a ship bound for Argentina. The nearest road was 12 miles away. Officials would interrogate the crew that the three young men had abandoned and find that the guard assigned to the detail had fallen asleep, which was apparently quite common. Guards had banked on the fact that the forests were remote and the temperatures were freezing. Few of the prisoners spoke any English, and they were often told tales that woods had bears, wolves, and Indians. One POW named Rudy Richter would later recall Quote, we had been told the forest was populated by wild Indians who would not hesitate to kill escaping prisoners. We had no reason not to believe these stories, End quote. I'd like to add here that POWs were often treated better by the state and locals than the Native American population. In fact, one of these camps was set up on Passamaquoddy land. The camp was next to Route 1, 
and members of the tribe were not given a choice whether they wanted the Nazi prisoners in their community. The poverty in Indian Township is one many indigenous people know. They had already suffered the loss of tribal members in World War I, despite the fact that they were not considered American citizens at the time. And during the Great Depression, they were vulnerable to tuberculosis due to malnourishment. They didn't receive proper treatment for tuberculosis, or pneumonia, or typhoid, when in 1934, 20 people died because of poor water quality. A report in 1935, quote, The small dwellings in which they live are so old and in need of repair that the Indians suffer from the cold in winter. There are holes in the roofs and sides, and window panes are broken in some. In the case of one large family, the sleeping quarters are inadequate, and five older boys and girls are obliged to sleep in one small room. Certain families do not have beds, not even mattresses to put on the floor on which to sleep. End quote. Members of local Maine tribes were often deprived of their rights. The Maine legislature revoked membership for both Passamaquoddy and Penobscot tribal members in the Maine House of Representatives in 1941. Those seats were not restored until 1975. Despite having been granted citizenship in 1924, Native Americans were not permitted to vote in federal elections until 1954 and state elections in 1967. The state would sell off the land which they had stolen from the Passamaquoddy tribe to build the Indian Township camp. The tribe was not able to reclaim it until 1980. Prisoners, however, had steady work for which they were paid. They lived in heated bunkers and were provided regular meals. Some prisoners were even allowed to attend local events such as dances and could attend classes through correspondence at the University of Maine. But to return to Keller, Schluter, and Gieb, our escaped prisoners, they were unfazed by the tales of wild Indians. They would travel at night to avoid detection, and they built shelters out of pine boughs to protect them from harsh winds. Surveillance planes would fly above Spencer Lake for two days. As law enforcement looked for signs of the escapees, help would soon come from an unexpected source. On the third day, a local hermit named Bill Hall was reluctantly deputized by officers. No one knew the woods like Hall. From the Down East article by Ron Joseph, a local named Dean Yeaton was quoted, His first contribution was unconventional but noteworthy. He killed a deer with a high-powered rifle with an earshot of the interned German prisoners. Hall placed the deer's organs in a grain bag and carried the sack over his shoulder to the POW fence. There, as Germans gathered behind the barbed wire, he dumped the bloody contents onto the snow and said through an interpreter, This is all that remains of one escapee. A dramatic gesture, to be sure, but the intended effect was ruined when Hall tried to say a German phrase he had learned the other day. He had intended to say, Let this be a lesson to you, but what he actually said was, Tie your shoes. <laughs> Hall would later advise game wardens to head to the nearby town of West Forks, which was 12 miles to the east of the lake. The prisoners would find that they couldn't cross the Spencer Stream or the Dead River, which lay south. The rivers would instead funnel the three men to West Forks, where the Dead River and the Kennebec meet. Five days after the escape, game wardens picked up the trail of the escaped prisoners near West Forks. The men were in a shelter they had made when they were apprehended at gunpoint. The Germans handed over their axes, and the wardens took them to a nearby country store. When questioned about the escape, the prisoners told army officials it was because Major Marshall, who oversaw the camp, had challenged the prisoners to flee. They had just wanted to show him that escape from the Spencer Lake POW camp was possible. Well, that, and they didn't want to face another summer of mosquitoes and black flies.
find yourself wondering why I picked POW camps for the week of Christmas, it's because of this next story which I read in the book It Happened in Maine by Gail Underwood Parker. I'm going to start off by saying that my notes for this one were wicked salty, so prepare to be disgruntled. A farmer in Easton, Maine was worried. H. Fenton Shaw had acres of potatoes which would soon be ready to be picked. He had no one to help him with the harvest. His family would try, but it's a lot of work to harvest hundreds of acres of potatoes. I should know, I come from a family of potato farmers. Arista County, often referred to as just the county by locals, employed roughly 32,000 people each year just for the enormous potato crop. But thousands of workers had left the state, and there was no one left to help. Shaw had heard about the Holton POW camp, the largest in the state. Much like the Spencer Lake camp, the prisoners were a mix of German Africa Corps and Wehrmacht troops captured after the Normandy invasion. The POWs had arrived on the Bangor and Aroostook Railroad. There were almost a thousand prisoners, which were ready to be assigned to local work details. Some questioned if the prisoners would try to escape to Canada or sabotage the work. They were the enemy, after all. Shaw discussed it with his wife, and they would choose a different view. Fenton Shaw would later be quoted, I figured I had the privilege of showing them that we were human over here on this side of the ocean. Shaw would soon begin making the 40-mile trip between his farm and the camp. He would truck 20 or 30 prisoners to help him with the harvest. The Germans had no experience picking potatoes, and soon their hands were scraped and sore. Shaw would go on to purchase gloves for each of the men with his own money. Camp officials would soon see the difference the gloves made and issued gloves to all of the crews that worked on potato farms. Prisoners enjoyed farm work because they got to use tractors and other modern farm equipment. They dug potatoes, picked beans, and shucked peas. The local bird's eye frozen food plant was operating 24 hours a day, which would have been impossible without the prisoners' labor. They each received a daily lunch ration. The camp provided a box lunch and water to those on work details. Knowing how much energy was being expended to work in the fields, Shaw and his wife would bring pots of stew and coffee down to the field for the men. Shaw and his wife would eat with them and listen to stories of life in the camp. Prisoners were working 10-hour days, with some traveling up to two hours each way to work sites. This is where the book started to lose me, because Underwood Parker wrote, There wasn't much time left to relax after work. They did have Sundays free, though and they were each paid $3 a month. In fact, if a prisoner could meet or exceed the daily quota set by officials, they could earn an extra 80 cents a day. They were paid in canteen credits, but the Holton prisoners would average roughly $14 a month. They could use those credits to buy things like cigarettes, candy bars, and beer. Even if some prisoners did not meet their work quota, Shaw would give excuses to the prison officials so they would get their full pay. After the potatoes had all been picked and winter came, Shaw directed his workers to his woodlot. Prisoners now faced winter work dealing with freezing cold and deep snow in very remote areas. Escape didn't look likely. The remote and difficult terrain meant anyone who tried to escape was either caught quickly or turned themselves in when they couldn't take the cold anymore. As Christmas approached, Shaw and his wife considered what they could get for the 42 Germans they now knew. The Shaws had learned about German Christmas customs during their lunches. The Shaws had started by allowing the prisoners to cut down some of the trees on the property to decorate back at the camp. The Shaws had also learned about the German custom of a two-day holiday. So Shaw called the camp and told officials that his truck had broken down 
and he wouldn't be able to pick up the men for work. After the call, Shaw and his family prepared Christmas stockings for each of the workers, stuffed with apples, oranges, nuts, and candy bars. The family loaded their gifts into the truck before heading down to Holton. They handed out each stocking to the prisoners. Not expecting such generosity, the prisoners sang Silent Night in German as a gift to the Shaws. The men would continue to work for the Shaw family throughout the rest of the war. When it ended, Shaw gathered the prisoners for a group photo, gifting a copy to each of them. May 26, 1946, the POWs had all returned to their homes. I was wicked surprised to find that there had been POW camps in Maine. I don't know why, they had to be kept somewhere. I was even more surprised to find out how well they were treated. Maine takes care of its own, so it's not uncommon for natives to come together for great acts of kindness. But they were Nazis, you know? Anyway, thank you for listening. I hope you all have a wonderful holiday and are staying safe. You can find sources for all episodes at pinetreepodcast.com. As always, music is by Lurker. Find more of his work at lurker.bandcamp.com, and you can follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram at VacationLandPod.